0: I'm Dr. Jack West from City of Hope Comprehensive Cancer Center. Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud and at islc.org under the news heading. Well... We're here at the World Conference on Lung Cancer in Barcelona, and I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Tony Mok, who is the Li Fan Medical Foundation Professor of Clinical Oncology in the Department of Clinical Oncology at the Chinese University of Hong Kong, Prince of Wales Hospital. Uh, he's also a recent IASLC president, so thank you for making the time to join us today. Thank you so much. Thank you for the invitation, Jack. Let's start with some of what you see as the uh, some of the highlights of the, the conference. Uh, we've gotten some data, there's some that are uh, information that's still gonna come out and then in a few weeks, some at ESMO. But uh, if you could speak to some of the key themes that you've seen and maybe some of the promising data. Right, so first
1: go back, to start with the target therapy which I love the most or know a little bit more and which is the fact that the new data coming out from KRAS mutation, highly exciting, Uh, is an update from the ASCO data. At that time they have 10 patients, now they're 22. Response rate stays close to 50%. Although they don't have the progression-free survival, but the spring port is looking quite promising. So I think they are in the right direction and I'm certainly looking forward to more mature data. And speaking of mature data, another exciting thing is the mature data from LOXO 292, the Libretto study. They have been telling us some data about high response rate and progression-free survival, but this is the first time with um, over 100 patients in their second night situation, reporting a median progression-free survival above 18 months. This is outstanding. I mean, this is like EGFL treated with osimertinib, and, and then, you know, uh, they're, in addition, they were able to res, uh, report on the response rate on the CNS metastasis patient. They got 11 of them. However, they got a response rate of about 91%. <laughs> Very important. Basically, check off all the boxes, high response rate limited toxicity, and then with a high, uh, long progression-free survival and CNS penetration. What else can you ask for, for targeted therapy? So I think it had matured into a uh, lovely lady, if the way to put it, and certainly, and uh, I think that really is a good news for the patient with a red-positive lung cancer. So I think those are the two most exciting news that I have, and then on the immunotherapy side, I guess the most exciting thing is the Caspian study, of course, uh, it is a uh, randomized phase three study of the uh, for extensive small cell lung cancer. patient were randomized to standard chemo of EP versus uh, in addition of the Duradumab or the duradumab combination. This time, they only got the chemo plus the duva, and they again managed to report the primary endpoint positivity with the median over survival of about 13 months versus the standard of the 10.2 months. And so I think it's encouraging. This is ECHO, the Mm IONPAR133. Now, I will not try to make comparison, but certainly the message is clear that addition of IO may improve the outcome of patient with the extensive small cell lung cancer. I think that's the most important message. So that is on the uh, IO small cell side, and then IO, Otherwise, they don't have any brand new data, but they do have some TMB data, uh, suggesting that TMB may be predictive in the single agent, but not in the combination. Uh, So I think that would be one nice message, not too clinical relevant, but potentially applicable.
0: immunotherapy in combination with chemo become a standard of care in Hong Kong or more broadly in China?
1: Yeah, so basically, uh, I think we still go by the selection by PDR1 expression, over 50% single agent. Under 50%, I think the uh, chemo IO is getting more preference. However, the in reimbursement system is different. Patient need to pay out of pocket. If they can afford it, then certainly that is preferable. But of course, that you know it is not for every patient because the the cost of IO is still very high.
0: How about in small cell? Small cell
1: again, same principle, because the prior data is only one study, marginal benefit, uh, you know, in a sense of you know when the curve does not look as impressive. But now that we get analysis that is showing the same data, then although it's not as impressive, then I think the uptake will be higher. Now the only question which is unsolved, unresolved is that who may benefit. So obviously you can see the progression-free survival curve overlapping each other and then divided. And so that indicated that is a proportion of patients that benefit, but we just don't know who.
0: What about uh, one of the issues that uh, Dr. Bob Doble brought up in the commentary about how to treat uh, or follow up of uh, the uh, the Loxo 292 agent uh, was with results as impressive as these, and and you know we've seen some similarly amazing results with osimertinib and uh, various ALK inhibitors. These are just totally different from prior phase two results with modest but statistically significant differences do we need phase three trials? I mean, you've led some of those trials of targeted therapy versus chemotherapy, and they essentially always show what you would expect, which is a stunning difference. It's hard to have equipoise about that. So what's your view about whether these trials should be run in places that, you know, like in China where there's limited access, but it seems almost unfair? So it is a question of the clinical trial for science, a clinical trial
1: for registration. Mm-hmm. Clinical trial for science, I don't think we need a randomized phase three study. Now we did the first one for the iPod is to demonstrate the principle of biomarker selection. And after that, all those trials is basically to demonstrate the same principle, but there's no additional scientific information add to it. Those trials help to register the drug, but does not teach us anything new on the fact that TKI is better than chemotherapy on the other mutation positive patient. So you can be told that, Jack, you are good looking one time, but you don't need to be told seven times that you are good looking. So I think scientifically, it really doesn't have the merit, you know, with all the money spent, that does not give us any new scientific information. Now, so for uh, RED, which is an uncommon mutation, uh, for scientifically, I don't think we need to do a randomized study because we know exactly how chemo is going to perform. Now, the, registry, the register may say, what if in case Brad is exceptionally good with your chemotherapy, but I really don't believe that chemotherapy will give you a median progression-free survival of 18 months in any lung cancer. So their speculation will cost millions of dollars, and that millions of dollars eventually will be paid by the patient or the taxpayer. So I don't think it's justified. They may say that I have my principle to hold as a regulator, but let's be honest with the sign. It's clear enough that no, we would not expect RET to have chemotherapy and have a median progression-free survival, anything close to even...
0: I mean, even any. if it was only 12 or 14 months, it would still be more than enough. Exactly. So the other
1: thing is about the signal of the toxicity. Because that's another reason for that. So the question is the how many patients need to be treated with the Noxo 292 before you have comfortable with the safety profile? And would a randomized study add on to your portfolio of toxicity profile? I don't think so. Because the randomized study, you you may also get a whole bunch of the chemopheral toxicity and that, that you try and try to compare, but it's different type of toxicity. So I think a single arm study will give you sufficient information. Is it large enough, long enough to give you a comfort zone of how safe the drug is. So I'm actually a big opposer of randomized study for LOXO 292 in this regard.
0: Let's turn to the experience of being IASLC president. Uh, So that's a, a big honor and a big responsibility, I'm sure. And now you're seeing other people do it. Can you talk about what that was like, how much work that added, and, and also I'm interested in whether you can add a personal signature kind of key points that you want to shape the organization with or is it largely the same from one, uh, from one presidency to the next?
1: So uh, first of all, I have to say the ISLC is a great organization. Uh, it start- of a vision of multidisciplinary and multinational uh, co- uh, collaboration. And we hold on to this principle over the years. And um, so my experience on generally positive because we do have a very uh, good group in the board of director that represent the different region. And in general we work cohesively together. And in, in a sense, is that we were, have been growing from a smaller organization to now a much bigger organization. So during my time as a president and also involvement in the board, is that we try to put in a more uh, stronger structure so that you know, the, our staff will do the running of the organization. While the leadership as a volunteer, as a president, or the other ex-official we would just provide the strategy and the direction and certainly i think you know we are more and more into that position now the office is well structured we have hired some very good people uh, to run the organization and in a sense is that we are a little bit more like ESCO now (laughs) previously is less like ESCO but now we are a little bit more like ESCO and with having the so-called staff to as the primary, uh, so administration administrator of the organization.
0: Can you talk about what it's like to practice in Hong Kong uh, for several reasons? One, I'm interested in the uh, array of patients. You must not just have patients from Hong Kong, but patients coming from other parts of China and also from other parts of Asia or even beyond that. Uh, so. Uh, what is the, the diversity and the, the, the issues with uh, availability of testing and, and drugs where you are versus more broadly? So it,
1: that is actually an interesting question because I had the opportunity of practicing in Canada uh, for many years before I returned to Hong Kong. And Hong Kong, Canada is a nationalized medicine. While Hong Kong, they have two sectors, the public and the private sector. And then you can see the diversity and the level of care between the systems. So going back to Hong Kong, I mean in a way of the uh, public system, there is limitation. Although the patient will have full access to healthcare, there is a limitation in a way that the radiological imaging actually usually have a long waiting list. So uh, you know, if you want to book a CT scan, the CT scan about four months from then, you are not going to use a CT scan to monitor the patient's uh, tumor response. So we end up asking the patient to pay for a private CT scan before we can monitor the response to the treatment. So it's an inter- integration of a little bit of the private surface expression on the imaging into the, 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 the public surface. Another thing is the fact that the expensive drug are not reimbursed. So we really have to be very imaginative in a sense senses that for patient who can afford it, they pay for it. Patient have the middle in, you know kind of middle and they can afford part of it, then we have to work with pharmaceutical company to have so called a supplementary uh, program. For example, crisotinib in Hong Kong, they have to buy purchase drug for 10 months. After 10 months it will be free. And there are other, every drug have their own little game. Some are buy two months, get one month off. You know, all those kind of things that go by their own company's regulation and we have to, we just imagine it. But the whole objective is to help the patient. And then there are patients who can absolutely cannot pay for it. Then we have to put in something called a safety net. And that have to go with the government's, the public uh, safety net system. And then by trying to get an expensive drug for government to pay for it within the safety net is a very challenging. We have to keep applying and applying, applying, and eventually they may have something there. So it, it is difficult. But then, for the patient's sake, we just have to find different way to cater to the different patient with the different economic capacity. And then in private, and this has going going a little bit crazy, you know, in a sense is that uh, when patient can pay for everything then there is extreme of potential problem of overtreatment and then they may have imaginative combination <clears throat> that is not really validated that can still occur within the system so for me as an academic then i see the full spectrum there are patients they come from private to me say, and they i ask why hell do you want to do that But then there are patients with the public system that will come and say that you should have done that, but why it's not done? So it's interesting. It's a very diverse uh, so-called level of practice within a small community, and mostly due to the economic uh, diversity.
0: Yeah, I've been struck by how creative the combinations and treatment approaches can be just in some of the consults that I might do. Uh, Very impressive. what is the role now and what do you see as the potential incremental benefit of liquid biopsies in, in Hong Kong or more broadly in China and Asia, uh, how much of a limitation is the need for tissue or the turnaround time, things like that?
1: Uh, certainly a very interesting question, but first, a uh, counter interest, I do have a uh company in Hong Kong, Hong Kong Science Park, that provide a liquid biopsy service. So if I speak very highly of it, (laughs) if I'm biased, you you know why. (laughs) So, but honestly, if you look at the data, uh, first of all, uh, it is a reasonable alternative for genomic profiling if you don't have sufficient tissue. And for that, it's quite a frequent phenomenon because a lot of tissue biopsy in our part of the world may be just based on cytology and then those are the patients that we may not have sufficient sample for genome, genomic profiling. And so certainly the uh, plasma-based genome profiling do provide us with a reasonable uh, alternative platform. Now, the second part is the role of uh, detection and the resistance. and then we have established it already quite well for T3M mutation. And then I think similarly, we can do the same for ALK. And even in the future, maybe even red, if I understand a bit more. So I think in a way of resistance, the detection of the mechanism of resistance and identifying treatment that have been pretty well established. What else, what other need to be established is the monitoring. Now we have sufficient data to suggest the persistent EGF mutation after one to two months of TKI is a poor prognostic factor. The question now is the fact that what intervention can be taken? And then, so once we have established a potential intervention, then monitoring may become a standard. Uh, But right now we don't have the mechanism of deciding of a plan of treatment for this group of patients yet. But certainly it's not a small group. I mean, if you look into number of this study, about 30% of the patient will have a persistent UGF mutation, and then we need to do something for this group of patients.
0: I agree that it's been very consistent in lung cancer as well as across other cancers, how helpful circulating tumor DNA can be in predicting who is going to respond or who is liable to progress in the near future, who's likely to recur after surgery, for instance. The challenge being, what can you do with this information to improve outcomes? So um,
1: today's talk that I debate whether single-agent TKI is better than combination. So admittedly, the combination data is intriguing from Japan and supported also by the Indian data. So maybe the combination is not for the beginning. Maybe it's the patient who already got a TKI and then get persistent EGAM mutation. They may be the one who got combination of chemotherapy and TKI. We just need to do a study to prove that.
0: Another setting where I could see a potential value is we have more systemic therapies, certainly targeted therapies, but uh, maybe more and more with immune therapies, patients doing very well with limited, essentially oligo-residual disease, and could we predict which patients might do especially well with consolidation local therapy? Uh, I don't know if you've that thought about it. That is a
1: one th- good thought. But my reservation is the fact that for patients with oligometastasis, the DNA allele frequency in the plasma may not be good enough. And our current sensitivity may not be sufficient to detect those DNA. So that would be the... the But I would just be
0: thinking of it in terms of trying to stratify which patients have a more systemic process Mm -hmm. as likely to emerge even if you did the local therapy And, and maybe can you speak to how often or uncommon it is to do local consolidation therapy in the setting like we've seen in the, the GOMEZ trial and some others, Sabre Comet? Uh, you know, obviously in, in Asia, I, I'm intrigued by the the type of cancer that you tend to see is different from north american or european certainly some areas that may be very amenable to local ablation here and there
1: well i am actually a a believer of that so for patients patient with the e mutation i consistently do a PET scan in about three months and then at the three month if there is any residual disease i'm very prone to provide the radiation to that to to that area Uh, data is not huge uh, but number one with the current uh, SBRT is actually the damage to the patient is minimal. And then the cost is also not huge, you know. And so I think, you know, it is a reasonable consideration, uh, you know, to take this approach. And I think, I've, I trust that Korea had an abstract on this, in this uh, meeting. A, uh, no, not, not Korea, China have a randomized phase two study from Guangzhou on this. Although it's not a huge sample, but then I think it's also suggesting they may improve on the progression-free survival.
0: Right, yeah. My questions around progression-free survival as an endpoint are largely based on if you're radiating all the areas most likely to show progress and progression, is that as valuable an endpoint, but-
1: Well, just like in this, um, meeting we have VATS versus lobectomy, open lobectomy, your logic is that you got less pain <laughs> and they prove it. And so similarly, I think that if you radiate the, the, the active sport, you're going to have longer progression, free survival. It's common sense.
0: Yes, right, right. So thank you so much for taking the time. It's great. It's always great to see you. I never have enough opportunities, but I'm glad that we have these uh, global meetings where we can uh, connect with. Them.
1: It's always great to talk to you, Jeff. Thank you so much. Excellent. Thank you. Thank
0: you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Visit the news section on IASLC.org for more Lung Cancer Considered podcasts. And please like your favorite episodes on SoundCloud and share them with your friends and colleagues. This is Dr. Jack West. Until next time.